I've been asked to talk on the subject when work is all-consuming. Um, I've been a secondary school teacher for over 20 years now. I'm currently a deputy head teacher at Hall Green Secondary School. And as I look back over those 20-plus years, it's, it's been pretty all-consuming a lot of the time. As I look back to the early days, I, I think I really, really struggled with, with just how work threatened to take over my life. I like to feel that I've learned a bit as I've gone along the way. I don't claim in any way to have arrived or to have all of the answers or to have it perfectly right. But I really do hope that some of my reflections will be helpful to people as, as we go through. And we're going to look at the life of David, and I hope to bring a number of insights from David there as well. And, and again, there's somebody who didn't always get it right, but I hope that the insights that we bring will be helpful to you. Um, the Bible gives us so many different little cameos from the life of David, and I've chosen two just to focus on. Um, one of them perhaps is David uh, you know, at the, one of the real high points in his career, which we, we've just read about, his, his victory over the Philistine Goliath. Um, yeah, just in terms of the structure, we're going to look first of all at Goliath, which, which I've called David at his best. We're going to look at uh, the affair with Bathsheba, which I've called David at his worst. And then we're going to look at, well, how did David respond to that, which be the third part of our talk. Before we really get started on David, I felt I needed to say a few things about work in general. The Bible has a lot to say about work, uh, and in fact, work is, work is introduced uh, right at the very start of the Bible in Genesis. And where things which are introduced right at the very start are important, I believe. So we have from Genesis uh, chapter 2, the very second verse, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And then John 5.17, Jesus said, My father is always at his work this very day, and I too am working. Three, three references to work. What does it tell us? Well, first of all, work is good. There's, if we were to take a straw poll, I'd say, how do you feel about Monday morning? Well, great, because it's a bank holiday, but if it were any other weekend of the year, how would you feel about Monday morning? Uh, I, I guess we all tend to, to bring some quite negative feelings to it. But actually... Adam was given work to do in Genesis chapter 2. The fall, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, came in Genesis chapter 3. Work was not a consequence of the fall. Work is something that we were given as human beings to do before the fall. After the fall, work became difficult because God said, through painful toil, you'll reap from the land. But work itself is something that God gave us. And actually, more than that, work is something that God does. Because it says when God had finished all his work in creating, and we are made in God's image. So actually, work is something that we do that reflects the image of God in us. God was exercising all of his creative energy in creating. We're exercising our creative energy in whatever work it is that we do. We are being godlike when we do it. We are showing that we're made in God's image. It is in our nature to do that, to work, to be creative, to serve. And all the things that we do are work. Um, we tend to think that work needs to be paid to have any value. Well, three people in the three verses I've read out are, are described as working. There's God the Father, there's Jesus, there's Adam. 
I don't think it makes any reference to the pay package that they got because they weren't paid. It's not about the payment. I'm in the happy position that I get paid for the work that I do. I'm sure many of you do as well. But it's not about the payment. Work is actually something that we do that expresses the image of God in us, that expresses God's creative work in us. So it may be paid work, but it may be work that you do caring for somebody, caring for children, caring for somebody who's elderly or infirm. You may be studying. But all of those are work, what we put our energy into during the day, and they all express the image of God in us. But the other thing that we learn about it is that God put a boundary around his work. It says on the seventh day he rested. And when I was a, a young Christian many years ago, I think I read that passage and thought, well, of course he, of course he rested on the seventh day because he'd finished. And that, that was the view amongst Christians for many, many years that God kind of created the world, however that happened, and then he rested. Well, he'd, he'd done his work and God was able to kind of walk away rather like he had a sort of Hornby railway kit and just watch it going and maybe intervene from time to time. But that's not what Jesus teaches us. He says, my father is always at his work, and as if that was enough, and to this very day I too am working. So work is something ongoing. God is involved in his creation, involved with us all of the time in an ongoing way. His work is not finished. He is still working. And yet God chose to put a boundary on his work. God chose on the seventh day he rested. He didn't then just get on with everything else he'd purposed to do with and through his creation. And if God chooses to put a boundary on his work, it's not a mark of weakness, it's about a pattern that God has put in place. We talk a great deal about work-life balance. Well, it was here in Genesis chapter 2. And the work-life balance was six days you will work, And on the seventh day you will rest. That is a pattern that God has put in place. And that idea that work is good, work is how we express ourselves, we express the image of God in us, has to be balanced against the fact that even God has put a natural boundary on work. So work is good, but work has a boundary. If we don't put a boundary on work, work can easily become all-consuming, and if we put that in spiritual terms, for many of us, what it can start to do is to take the place of God in our lives. God is the one who gives us meaning and purpose in our lives. It's very easy, if we don't put the boundary on the work, that actually the work, the thing that we do, whatever that is, whether it's we're caring for somebody and we need to be needed, whether it's we're out there making money or out there achieving, out there getting success, out there getting everyone's praise, whatever it is, that can become the thing that gives us meaning and purpose. And in spiritual terms, the Bible calls that idolatry, putting something else in the place of God, and that is very dangerous, which is why God has put a boundary around even his own work to demonstrate to us that work is great, but it has a boundary. And so that's very much the backdrop to what I want to say. Um, I also want to make a comment about the the, the title of the talk, when work is Um, all-consuming. There are two words that that come to my mind when I talk about that aspect of work, all-consuming, but also the word overwhelming. All-consuming describes work, I think, when the drivers come from within, when it's, it's all about what I want to achieve. 
the success I want to get, the money I want to make, whatever it is. It's about internal drivers. Overwhelming talks far more about the external things that drive us. Um, as I look back at my 20-plus years of teaching, I can see it's always been a subtle mix of the two things. The all-consuming is, is about me and my desire to achieve, which of itself is good, but has to be put, given boundaries. But there's the overwhelming as well. And as my time has gone, I like to think, certainly, that I've perhaps been able to be more in control of the all-consuming side. I've been able to submit to God those natural desires to achieve and do well so that they're put in their right place. But as I've gone on in my career, I think the overwhelming side of it, if anything, has grown as you perhaps take on more responsibility in your work. Uh, I work in teaching, so, but, but in services in general, we're usually being asked to do more with less year on year. There is pressure to do more. And at the point when you say, no, I won't do any more, you know that somebody somewhere may well be missing out. It's not just a question of deciding I'll make less money. Somebody is probably going to miss out somewhere. So those aren't easy decisions to make. Calls for discernment, personally. How much of this is due to the internal drivers, the all-consuming side of work? How, of it is, how much is due to the external drivers? It will be a combination of the two, which is why it's something you need to, to hold prayerfully before God. So work is, is all-consuming, and, and often it's overwhelming as well. So why, why are we looking at David? David might seem at first choice a very odd First sound, a very odd choice to make uh, if we're going to do a talk uh, where we look at work because he was a king. And if I said, well, we're going to look at Queen Elizabeth um, because she's, she works very hard, and, and she does, and she does a great job, um, but hardly the natural choice when we're talking about the world of work because her world of work is very, very different from everybody else's. Um, David is unusual for somebody who's in the business of royalty. Uh, because he genuinely did start at the bottom and, and work up. And I, going through the books of Samuel, I counted six different career phases, if you like, that David had. He's first introduced to us working as a shepherd boy, so very much uh, down at the bottom and in the, in the field of agriculture. He gets called to then uh, play his harp, his lyre, at the court of Saul. He becomes a court musician and, of course, is a, is a bit of a singer-songwriter, in fact. He writes psalms as well. Um, Saul likes him, so he becomes the armor-bearer to the king. So he goes into something more of a service industry. My guess is it's a bit like a PA. Um, from there, he gets further promotion, and he, he becomes an army officer. So he's involved very much in the military. Um, as we'll see, Saul turns against him, and he has to flee. He becomes a fugitive for many years, running for his life, which are loosely called the uh, self-employment. Um, and, and finally, he makes it to the dizzy heights of being, being the king, which is very much uh, a political role in those days. So we've got somebody actually who has had a number of different jobs, a number of different careers. And if we can have the next slide, please. Um, what, what we see when we, when we read through the books of Samuel, which recount the story of David, was here is somebody who was phenomenally successful in every one of those roles. So a real high achiever. But the other side of it is we see here is somebody who actually made at least one very, very serious mistake in his, in his personal life. And, and perhaps as a result of that, he, he experienced significant personal tragedy as well. So we see the two things juxtaposed. And of course, we, we see that in the world around us as well, that frequently somebody can be very, very successful in their work life, 
but running running personal life is, is something that, that doesn't always run as smoothly. Um, and another reason why I think David is a great person to study is that he's one of the few people in the Bible where we have significant books that write the history of his life and tell us about the things that he did. But he was also a writer of books in the Bible through the Psalms that he wrote. So we have a real insight into what was David thinking? What was David feeling when some of these different things went on? And I hope later on to put some of those two things together. Um, We had the reading then. We're going to look at the story of David and Goliath. Um, How did David get to this point? Well, He's introduced to us in the Bible as a shepherd boy working, looking after the, the flocks for his father. Um, he's prophetically anointed by Samuel. He says, one day you're going to be king. And then he goes back to his normal life. Um, the Israelites are at war with the Philistines. The Israelite army are lined up on one hill while the Philistines are on the other hill. And David, as the youngest in the family, youngest of eight brothers, <clears throat> is sent to take some food, some provisions out to his brothers who are all there fighting. And as David is introduced to us in this story, what do we see? Well, we're told about Goliath, the champion who stands up for the Philistines, and all the ranks of thousands of professional soldiers from Israel who listen to him coming out day after day and challenging them. And as David sees this going on, he is absolutely affronted. And he's affronted on two counts. He's affronted because the professional soldiers are terrified and intimidated by this man. And he's affronted because this man is actually defying God. He's defying the soldiers of a country that was known to have God, Yahweh, as their God. And on both counts, David is absolutely affronted. So he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. And, and uh, yeah, if someone were to stand up in public life nowadays and make a comment like that, we would, uh, we would say it was highly offensive, possibly laws against it. But why does David speak in this way? Well, circumcision was a mark that an Israelite man had in his body to show that he was under God's covenant. It showed that he belonged to God, that God was God over all of Israel, and God protected them. And God was therefore interested in every area of their life. And David knows that when he comes up. He says, we belong to God. When he refers to Goliath as this uncircumcised Philistine, he's saying, why are you so terrified? We belong to God. Every part of our lives is under God's covering, is under God's protection. Why are you cowering in fear and being intimidated by this man? And David's understanding of of covenant is such that he draws on the experience of his work as a shepherd boy. Because David understands that he is in covenant with God, that God is interested in every aspect of his life. And David has been in the most lowly of his various job roles, on the hill, looking after sheep. And a wild animal comes and takes one of the sheep. David goes after it, fights off the wild animal, kills it, rescues the sheep. And this tells me a great deal about David. Now, I don't know how you'd feel, but if I'd sent my son up to look after the sheep and he came back at the end of the day and said, I'm sorry, Dad, I've lost one of them. A lion came and attacked it. I would say, well, okay. Sure, you did your best. At least you're okay. That's not David's attitude. David says, not on my watch. Nothing, nothing is going to get one of these sheep that I've been looking after. 
What does that tell? Well, it shows a really wholehearted attitude to his work, even when nobody is watching, even when it would be perfectly excusable to have, to have lost something. It's not going to happen in David's watch. That's, that's the way he approaches whatever task he has given. There's a real wholeheartedness, and that is a good thing. But his understanding of covenant is he understands that God is interested in every aspect of what he's doing. It's not just, well, here I am, just a lowly shepherd boy on the hill. No, God is interested in this. God is part of my life. He is my God. I am in a covenant relationship with him. It's important I rescue the sheep. God will help me and protect me. And so David's experience time and time again is he goes after a wild animal and God somehow has enabled him to rescue a sheep and kill a wild animal. Why is that important? Well, it shows that we have the opportunity in even the most mundane of everyday work to be stepping out and trusting God. God is, is interested in it, and we can step out and learn to trust God. We can see God's provision. We can experience God's wisdom and discernment in whatever work that we do. We should not make the mistake of thinking that the work I do, Monday to Friday, Saturday, whenever it is, is in some way less spiritual than when I come to church on a Sunday, because God is interested in all of our lives. Work is just how we, I've said, express God's creative energy, but it's also how we interact with the world, how we, with God in us, interact with the world. And God is interested in that, and God is interested in working through us, and God is interested in us acting in faith, trusting him, expressing our faith in all sorts of different ways in the work that we do. And there's another scriptural principle in action here, Jesus explained it more explicitly many years later when he said, he who is faithful in the small thing, <clears throat> bigger things, will, I haven't quoted it correctly, but it will, be, will be given responsibility for bigger things. David has learned to trust God in the relatively small thing, still feels quite a big thing to me, and in a place where nobody is watching. Consequently, God has given him the opportunity in a much more public setting and where the stakes were even higher to carry on putting that same trust in God. And there is a real principle here that whatever your work is, it's an opportunity to be learning to step out in God. There are opportunities there to be learning to, to trust God. So David does that and David is successful in, in defeating Goliath. Um, I just need to point out David defeating Goliath, what was the miracle that happened there? David was very, very skillful at using a sling, and, and with that sling he was able to hit Goliath at that one tiny part of his forehead that wasn't protected by armour. Um, the miracle probably wasn't that David was skillful at using a sling. David knew he was skillful at using a sling. To my mind, the miracle was the fact that there were thousands and thousands of professional soldiers out there saying it can't be done and mocking him for saying it can be done. The miracle was that David had the courage to say, no, I've got trust in God. We can go and do this thing. That was the real miracle, I believe, that, that, that God worked in and through David. And this, this episode with Goliath really catapults David in, in his career. He's, he becomes Saul's armor bearer and then becomes an army officer. And in fact, everything that he does, he is incredibly successful at. And he becomes so successful that before long, Saul, the king that he serves, becomes jealous of him and <coughs> tries to kill him. He makes several attempts to kill him, and eventually David has to flee. 
and with a, a band of trusted followers, lives out in the hills in caves and things, and lives as a fugitive for, for many years. If you read through the narrative in Samuel, what you'll find is that various points there, when David has to fight a battle, before he does that, he inquires of the Lord. Shall I go now? How do I do this? There are two points where it talks about David found strength in God. So we know that actually, what must it be like for seven years to live as a fugitive with every day somebody out there hunting you for your life? Hard to imagine the emotional strain that puts on you. But the Bible tells us at various points, David found strength in his God. And we learn as well that there were two occasions during that seven-year period where Saul, David came upon Saul defenseless and had the opportunity to kill him and chose not to. He said, I'll not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Which tells me that for all his success, the motivation wasn't selfish ambition. If David was going to become king, it was because God would bring that about in its proper time. He had a really good understanding of that. So David is very, very successful. If we can have the next slide, please. Um, eventually, Saul is, is, continues to fight against the Philistines and is killed in battle. Um, and David's own tribe, the tribe of Judah, very quickly um, proclaim him as their king. But another seven years go by when there's a sort of civil war situation where there's still conflict between the tribe of Judah and the other tribes until eventually... They come to an agreement and they ask David to be their king and David becomes king over all of Israel. And David, the high achiever, who has, with God's help, succeeded in so many areas, finally has achieved what I guess might have been his, his goal. Um, his enemies are defeated, he's captured the land, he's, he's made his, his capital in Jerusalem. Everything that he wanted to achieve perhaps has happened, so what could possibly go wrong? And this is, of course, where we come into the second part of the story. We see David at his worst, and if I can read out, this is from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. So David has won his battles, he's finally secure as king. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, which is one of the funniest verses in the Bible. It sounds like it's the start of the cricket season or something. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And another aside comment is, David finally does what the management man who tells you should do with your work, because he delegates it. But as we'll see in the story, this, this perhaps came a bit late. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from a monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. From all of the success in David's work life, he now goes out and commits the worst blunder of his life, perhaps, and he commits adultery with Bathsheba. He then wants to cover up what he's done. So he calls for Uriah the Hittite, who is the husband of Bathsheba, calls him back from the, the fighting where he is and says, time for some rest and recuperation, go and spend some time with your wife. 
hoping that Uriah will assume that when the baby comes, it's his. Uh, Uriah, being an honorable man, says, well, I'm not going to do that. Well, my comrades are out there sleeping in fields and fighting, and he, he sleeps outside. So David sends him back to battle and sends note, note to Joab, who's the general in charge of the armies, right, what I want you to do, put Uriah at the front line, the place where the fighting is thickest, and at the worst time, I want you to withdraw the troops from him. And word comes back that Joab has done this, and not surprisingly, Uriah has been killed in battle. What David thought at this point, I don't know, but I guess he thought, few. The baby's going to come, but everyone's going to assume it was Uriah's. Uriah's been killed in battle, given an honorable funeral, and that's the end of the matter. Until Nathan the prophet comes to talk to David, and he tells him a story. And he tells him a story about a rich man and a poor man. So there was a rich man who had many, many sheep, and there was a poor man who had just the one, one lamb. And the rich man takes the lamb from that poor man. And David is furious and offended, and said, well, this man deserves to be punished. And of course, at that point, Nathan said, well, that's you. And suddenly, David realizes that he's been found out, that God has given Nathan insight into what has happened. He's been discovered. Nathan says that the words here, and as, a, as a consequence, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me, this is God speaking, and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So the story continues. We can have the next slide. Got it. Um, this is where the personal tragedy comes in. The child that Bathsheba has dies at a very young age. In David's own family, his oldest son, called Amnon, then goes and rapes his half-sister, who's called Tamar. The brother of Tamar, who's called Absalom, then murders Amnon in revenge. And shortly after that, Absalom, David's second son, then sets himself up as king, tries to gain favor from lots of people, undermine David. And David has to put down that rebellion, and in the course of it, his son Absalom gets killed as well. And he experiences the absolute troughs of personal tragedy in his life as well. Um, we can speculate, was that God's deliberate judgment that all of that happened? Or was it purely because David has not actually run his personal life and his family life the way he should do? If you read the narrative in the Bible, David never really takes his sons in hand for the way that they behaved when his oldest son rapes his sister. There's no record in the Bible of David going and, and, and talking to him and dealing with him. And, and my hunch is that's because Amnon would turn around and say, who are you to tell me off? You've done worse. And so by his actions, he has totally undermined himself as father to all his different sons. He's lost all the moral authority. So if we got the next slide, please. Um, so... Why did he do it? Well, got various suggestions, but there's, I think there's, there's something really key in the words the prophet Nathan speaks to David. He says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little... I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And when I read this, 
it sounds to me intensely personal. It sounds like the words of a father speaking to his son saying, I gave you everything. What more could I have given you? Perhaps it's a bit reminiscent of the prodigal son story. What more could I have given you, and yet you have treated me like this? And in such a story, what does the father actually want from his son? What he actually wants is is relationship. And my hunch is that that's the key to this story. But if we go to the next slide, um, there's a mixture of reasons I'd like to put forward for why did David act in this way, and they're all relevant, and perhaps the the truth is is some combination of those. Um, Call it midlife crisis. He'd achieved his goal, and uh, in, in the words of the video, and now the game goes back in the box. He's achieved so much, and finally, when that period of, of fighting, of being on a war footing, of, of being you know, where the work that he was doing was dominating all day, every day, that period has come to an end, and, and I just wonder if David found his life in some way rather empty at that point. He'd achieved everything he set out to do. Empty. Bored. Secondly, David's had 14 years, seven years of living as a fugitive, seven years of civil war, where he's been on a war footing the whole time. And he hasn't really been able to set any boundaries around the work that he does. He hasn't been able to invest into his personal life while he was living as a fugitive. The Bible tells us that his Various wives and children were, were put in safety at a particular village while he and his men were, were in the hills fighting. He had to do that to survive. Um, I feel a certain sympathy for David because while you're living as a fugitive, what you can't just do is, so I'm going to take the afternoon off and play golf. Um, you don't have that option, perhaps, to set boundaries in the same way. But somehow, boundaries have got to be set. And in that period of time when the work has been all-consuming, the boundaries haven't been there. He hasn't done what he needed to do in his own family life. But here, I believe, is the real heart of it. Um, He's reached his life's goal. He's done it with God's help. But somehow, it appears to me, that relationship with God has become very, very task-oriented. He has great faith in God to help him win battles. But what has happened to that relationship with God purely for its own sake? That knowing God purely for who he is. And my hunch is that something in David's relationship with God over those years has gone a bit dull. He has great trust in God in terms of doing and achieving. But loving God for his own sake, it's just gone dull. Um, As it happens, it was Solomon, his son, who wrote in the Proverbs, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And something in David's heart, I believe, perhaps, had just gone a bit dull in his relationship with God, which is what made him so vulnerable to the temptation that came along. So what do we do about it? Well, well, clearly... Setting boundaries is important, and as I said, I think it, you know, sometimes it's simple, sometimes it can be complex, and that may need to be something, if, if you recognize that as a, an issue for you, something that you just have to bring to God. What's that complex interplay between the external drivers and the internal drivers? 
I believe that actually understanding, first of all, that we are vulnerable is important. Saying it's not just David who can go and go from the absolute heights down to doing something dreadful, that, that any of us could make some blunder at some point, and understanding when we are vulnerable. I think I've come to realize over the years in my work, uh, we, we work very hard in term time and we get rather nice holidays at the end of it. The first few days of a holiday, I, I think I've noticed in myself I can become very, very selfish because I feel I'm entitled to a holiday. I want, I want things my way then. Actually, that's the time I'm probably most likely to go and do something I shouldn't do because I'm, 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 I'm selfish and I'm vulnerable at that point. It's important to understand your, your areas of vulnerability. But the big one, I think, and this is, this is the one really that sets us apart as Christians because those first two, are, I, I could stand here quite happily uh, in front of work colleagues and talk about setting boundaries and work and understanding when we're vulnerable. But, but as Christians, the, the, the really key one is and, and this is a question I've personally been really grappling with for last year. How do we really experience that fresh relationship with God, even at times when we are tired, so we just don't feel you know, the, the nice feelings that we sometimes feel when we, when we worship God? Times when, when maybe the work is just so many thoughts from work because there's so much to be done, there's so much pressure, so I can't get the work thoughts out of my mind. How do I keep that relationship with God alive in those, in those times? And I don't have the perfect answer. I've got one or two suggestions of things that I have found helpful over the years and hope might be helpful to, to you. Um, as I was praying about this, I just had the, this feeling, you know, you can survive on crumbs if they're crumbs of the right thing. It's not ideal, but you can survive on very little if it's the right thing. And, and the Bible puts this rather better, uh, Psalm 84, which says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And I think what I would say is what I am learning is that at those times when it just seems that work is on top of you and you're tired and you're struggling to keep going, just to seek five minutes genuinely in God's presence, five minutes genuinely in God's presence will, will probably do more for me than... Half an hour sitting, thinking, oh, I must have a quiet time this morning, staring at my Bible, staring out the window, nothing really happening, struggling. Um, so how do you find that, that, that genuine time when you can connect with God that will just give you the energy that you need, that just keeps that relationship with, with God alive? Um, so a few suggestions. Personally, at times like that, I, I think over the years, and I know it's obvious, I have found scriptures to be incredibly helpful because at times when you're just so tired it's hard to kind of feel God isn't it great that God has given us his word which is full of promises and those promises are absolutely sure and true and I think one of the things that I feel God has led me to over the years at times when I've just found work hard and, and really getting on top of me is, is particular verses at particular times so I can remember a particular time when that wonderful verse from Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in all things with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And I, I went through a phase where it was just every night, five minutes, I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to pray my way through that verse. And it's, it was always when I got to the point 
with thanksgiving. I said, okay, let's just stop. What I'm going to give thanks for? Whatever it was. Do you know, there's always something you can give thanks for. And I find that the point when I start to give thanks to God, something in me just starts to come alive again. Just start to connect with God again. And at that point, we then move on to, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds, and I can present my requests to him. I found that a verse like that takes me from the immediate, well, and I've got to start there, I've got to start there with what's dominating my mind, dominating my day, but it takes me from there into God's presence. Um, another one, again, I'm sure, I'm sure it's... Yeah, true for many of you, but I, I, I just remember a time when, when God just showed me that you know, wonderful verse, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And I remember in days when um, our kids were little and we seemed to have to survive on just ridiculously small amounts of sleep, driving to work, I, I can't do it today, I can't face it, I'm too tired, you know, I'm going to... I, I taught in a Catholic school. We, I, we had to say a prayer every morning. I remember there was one morning I got halfway through the Lord's Prayer with my class. Just complete brain freeze because I'd had one hour sleep the night before. Total brain freeze. Couldn't. Luckily, the class knew it. We, uh, we kept going. Um, but, but I learned. God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Just to me, has become one of those verses that sustains me at times when the going is really, really hard. I, I love that verse because it's Paul recounts this experience when he's asked God to remove whatever something that he refers to as a thorn in his flesh, maybe some illness, we're not quite sure. And God said no. It's one of the few times in the Bible when a prayer isn't answered. But God said no. My grace is sufficient for you. Isn't that amazing? That the one of the few times a prayer wasn't answered, God gives what to me is one of the most fantastic verses in the Bible that we know even when things aren't working out the way we want, God's promise is my grace is sufficient for you. And actually, just by taking that verse in my daily work, what I discovered was those days when I just felt I can't face it and God is just kept bringing me back to that verse and I'd sort of pray about it in the car on the way to work. All the difficult things in my work seemed to work out really easily those days. And the days when I was feeling a little bit fresher, I seemed to really struggle with things. And actually, over the years, I've, I've, that's something God has just, I don't know, built into my faith. That when, it, when I just feel so weak and I can't go on, God says, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. And at the times when I'm feeling weakness, the Lord... Thank you, your grace is sufficient. And I still find, even now that our kids do sleep well, um, I still find on those days when I just have to go before God and said, I'm, I'm just so tired, so weak, can't do it. Those are the times when the difficult things seem to get themselves resolved in my work. It's like and God just says, okay, just, just let me take over for a little bit. Um, so God's word, at the times when we just can't feel him, I've found God's word to be an absolute lifeline because those promises are true. You don't have to worry about them. Those promises are true. Just take those promises and thank him and let God show you what he can do in your life. Um, a, a second one. The Bible tells us that we, we Jesus said we, we, sh we should love our enemies. He said you know, even the sinners love their friends. You love your enemies. That's what's going to make you seem really different. And it says, pray for those who persecute you. So one of my favourite uh, prayer drills at work is, and I've had a day that's really wound me up. Um, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to pray for the three people who have irritated me most today. It's, if you've never done it, 
I encourage you to try doing it. It's fantastic. Because, of course, you start praying for these people. You think, well, I wonder what was rattling their cage today. They probably didn't sleep very well. I'm going to pray that they have a really good night's sleep tonight. They probably argued with their partner or argued with their children. Right, I'm going to pray they have a fantastic evening with their partner and their children tonight. And, and of course, you've prayed blessing on that person. You feel totally different. And the amazing thing is, because you are, you are choosing to do that thing which is so contrary to human nature, um, I, I do believe it brings about God's pleasure when you do that. And, and for me, that takes me again, starts me off in that position where I'm wound up like that, and it lifts me into, into God's presence because I'm doing the thing that God wants me to do. It takes me, it moves me from one place to another. And, and, and finally, again, just at times when it is so hard, one that my personal experience that I finding, I've just found a great blessing of this has been the power of routine. And um, in, in Sue was with me this morning. I, Sue is the more creative um, member of the Simpson partnership. Um, Sue's not especially a person of routine, but has amazing creative ideas, usually about five great ideas before breakfast. I'm less creative than that, I regret to say, but I do find that routines are very helpful to me, especially at times when I'm struggling and I'm tired. And, um, and again, just over the years, in the course of my work, I've found that little bits of routine have helped. And, and one that I felt, it was some years ago, God very, very clearly led me to what on, in those days, quite a lengthy journey to work at a particular crossroads that I passed on my journey to work. God had brought into my life three different people who were suffering from cancer. And at that point, it was when I get to that crossroads from there to school, I'm just going to devote that little piece of time every morning to praying for those people. And it was just a particular time in life when God led me to do that. Um, I did it for about a year. And at the end of that year, one of the people, people I'd lost touch with, but the other two um, had both made full recovery from their cancer, one very much with the aid of medical help, the other one actually they'd ceased all medical intervention, they got past that point and then she just remarkably started to get better. Um, now, I was not the only person praying for those people, I have to add, but it, sometimes just having, having that, that sort of routine when you're feeling so tired that was almost a gift that God, to me that God chose to let me be involved in what he was doing in those people's lives. And that, was, that for me was just a way of keeping that, if you like, that adventure of faith alive in God at times when I was really tired, really struggling, just because work was, was getting me down. Um, if we go to the next slide, please. For, very near the end now. This isn't the end of the story because we've, we've left poor David in, very much in the lurch in our story. David is... is mortified at what he's done. How did David find his way back into relationship with God? And this, this is the bit where I say it, it's a great thing that, that David also wrote Psalms because it gives us insight into what he was thinking and feeling. So Psalm 51 was written just after David's, Nathan has spoken to David and, and confronted him about his adultery with Bathsheba. And, and in as much as God's word to David through Nathan the prophet was intensely personal. David's response to God, written down in Psalm 51, was intensely personal and direct as well. 
We're very used to people in public life being caught out, having done something wrong, and, and making different sorts of excuses, saying it wasn't them, saying they were economical with the truth, using one euphemism or another, saying, oh, I regret what happened, which usually means I, I'm sorry that I got caught. Um, David does none of this. He 100% confesses his wrong, and more than that, he understands that above all else, he has sinned against God. So he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what was wrong in your sight. And he continues, surely you desire truth in the inmost parts. And then verse 16, you don't delight in sacrifice or I bring it. In other words, there's nothing I can do to make this better. I can't go and buy you chocolates or flowers and everything will be okay again. All I can give you, God, is the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. And so David's response, David's repentance is absolutely total and it's absolutely personal. And I would suggest that whether you are trying to find your way back to God after doing something terrible, as David had done, or actually just because you recognize that that relationship with God you've allowed to become dull because of all the pressures coming from outside, um, either way, that total personal return to God is the way to do it. And because of that, David was restored in his relationship with God. He still had to live with the consequences of his actions. He still had those terrible things happen in his family. But his relationship with God was restored. And something I was musing on as I prepared this talk was the different Psalms, because there was Psalm 23 as well, the Lord is my shepherd. How did the person who wrote that make that bad choice with Bathsheba? And when I started reading around it, all the theologians think that David actually wrote Psalm 23 right at the end of his life, some years after his uh, affair with Bathsheba. And so Psalm 23, where David says, you restore my soul, Psalm 23 is his reflection, looking back in his life, all through the years of difficulty, all through the years where in his work, with God's help, he succeeded, but also through the years where David himself personally got it badly wrong and was restored into relationship with God. God's, David is reflecting on all of that when he writes uh, Psalm 23. And finally, just it's, it's up on the PowerPoint, um, even though David had to live with the consequences of what he'd done and his family had to live with the consequences of what he'd done, God has a remarkable way of when we've got plan A for our life and through our blunders we've turned it into plan B, God has managed to turn plan B back into plan A for David's life. And, and the Bible tells us that while Bathsheba's baby died very young, she gave birth to another son um, who was called Solomon, and it said, and the Lord loved him and said that they should give him the name Jedidiah, which means loved by God. And Solomon was the one who became king after David. Solomon is the one through, through which we trace the lineage that eventually leads to Jesus. And so despite David having messed up, God is able to bring his purpose for David's life back on course. And I think there's, there's a lesson there as well that, 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 that in relationship with God, we, we, there, there is safety that even, even when we mess up, God is able to bring things back on course again.
So many ideas in there. I, I hope that within that you, you find something that, that encourages, challenges, or, or helps or supports you in, in some way. I'd just like to, to pray, if I may do, as, as we finish. Father God, thank you that, that you walk with us in our work and you're interested in every aspect of what we do day by day. Thank you that you've given us work as a way of expressing your heart to the world and, and, and serving the world. Uh, Father, pray for people who maybe need just a bit of discernment in thinking, how do I set the boundaries? Working out what, what are the internal drivers that come from me and my work? What are the external forces that are pushing me and how do I divide between the two? Father God, thank you that above all else you seek relationship with this and just pray now that for anybody who perhaps recognises that, that that relationship with you has become a bit hollowed out, gone a bit dull. Um, Father, I pray that, that, that you would just help anyone in that situation now just to, to make that response back to you. And as, as Psalm 23 says, you restore my soul. And I pray, Lord, for, for anyone in that situation now that you would just restore the, the freshness of that relationship. Amen.